Did you ever get lost as a kid? If you're like me, it happened way more often than I'd like to admit. And I don't mean existentially, like, was I lost? Did I know who I was? But like, literally, did you get lost? A time where you didn't know where you were or if your parents or anybody else would find you. Maybe this happened in small areas and it's a lot easier. A grocery store, maybe a local park, or larger areas like your neighborhood or apartment complex where you grew up. Or like me, it was a theme park, carnival stadium with lots of area and a lot of people. I'm horrible at directions. And so I got lost as a kid a ton, and I still get lost. It hasn't stopped. Some of you got lost. When you get lost, the fear probably gets the, the best of you. Like the, the anxiety gets the best of you. Once you've realized, this is kind of really like where it hits. You realized you don't know where you are, and you've been away from your parents for too long. You can't remember when the last time I saw them. You, you probably don't recognize your sons. Even if you do, you're like, they're not here, this is weird. Even if the area is familiar, it feels foreign if your parents aren't around you. So your anxiety, it starts creeping in. Your, your mind, if it's like mine, it, it immediately goes into disaster mode. All the things that could possibly go wrong, like that's going to go wrong. You ask, what if I never find them? Can I trust anyone? How are they going to find me or where to find me? If I move from this spot, are they still going to find me? These thoughts build and build and build on top of one another, and you break down, probably crying like I do, and you lose all hope. I'm an orphan. Nothing's gonna, no one's going to find me. Doesn't matter how many strangers come by and try to help you. Like, oh, you're lost. Let me try to help you. Doesn't matter. If they're not your parents, it doesn't matter. Nothing's right in the world. And the more who come up to you, the more you want to find your parents. And so there's, there's, there's nothing better than faintly hearing your parents call your name. They scream at the top of their lungs and they sprint towards you. There's, a, there's just about nothing better in this world than that happening. They hug you, and they tell you how much they love you. And John 10 presents something like this with you and Jesus. You're lost, and when you hear him, you know it. And he knows you. You, the sheep who've been wandering and looking for pasture, you find your home. You find Jesus. And so last week, one of, the, one of the sheep, and we'll see how this is connected, one of the sheep, a blind man, was brought back into the folds, back into the fold, back into the synagogue, although he's cast out again. And where does he find pasture? He finds it with Jesus. And this week, you'll hear Jesus speak to you as that blind man. You, you receive the same pasture that he received himself. We're going to see this in three points. The first is the voice of the shepherd, the one who calls out to you, verses 1 through 6. 
You hear the voice of Jesus who is your entrance. He's the door, which is how you get in, and it's how you stay in. He's the one who is your salvation and who enters you into, enters you into salvation. And second is goodness of the shepherd. This is verses 7 through 13. And Jesus is the only entrance because he's the good entrance. He's the only good entrance through to the pasture. That's because he's the good shepherd. And lastly, one with the shepherds. Not only does he bring you in, he makes you part of himself. Not just on the side, he's doing his thing, you're doing yours. You're one with the shepherd. When you come to the fold of Jesus, you receive everything he has. You become one with him. And so I hope this becomes clear throughout. Jesus, the good shepherd, brings you into the sheepfold of his father. And you will never leave. This is your pasture from now on. So we'll start with point one, voice of the shepherd in verse one. You've probably heard me say this. Sometimes chapter breaks are a little unfortunate for a reading because chapter 10 is connected to chapter 9. If you look at verse 21, Jesus connects this, or John connects this, to the, the account of the blind man, and so we're going to see this. Because John, or Jesus, he describes, you can say, two ways of getting into the sheepfold. There's a right way, and there's everything else is the wrong way. He compares entrance to the door. He's really talking about like leaders, those who shepherd the flock. Those who enter through the door, the sheepfold, and this is kind of literally, it's the courtyard of the sheep. It's kind of the outer part. It's the outer courtyard where the sheep are. And those who come from another way, and that's, that's really like breaking in. That's, I'm not going to go through the door because I'll be recognized. I'm going to go through the other way. They can't see me coming in that way. You could say breaking in and entering, going where you don't belong. And in an agrarian society, they would have understood this. I don't really understand this because I'm not part of an agrarian society, but they were. And some of you actually are part of this too. They would have understood this metaphor well. But do you know where they're at right now? It's the same place they were in chapter 9. They're in a temple. They're actually right outside of a temple. They're probably looking at the temple when Jesus is telling them this. When he looks at the temple, like that should be your pasture. But you were just kicked out. So where do you go? The one who breaks and enters is a thief and robber. And if you know the rest of the Gospels, this is, this is basically how Satan describes the thief, robber, liar from the beginning. So he's describing him and Satan and, and implicitly the Pharisees who were there. In verse 2, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep and describes one who doesn't go through outside or goes through the door. And that's the one who owns the pasture. He walks to the door. He owns the keys, you could say. He, he's got the right, so he opens the door. He walks right in. He's the, he's the shepherd of the pasture. This is, this is his sheepfold. He's not going to somebody else's. This is his sheepfold. This is my area. These are my sheep. And I think sometimes when we think of shepherds, we, we generally think like meek and milds. Those, those pictures you'll see of shepherds with nice flowing cloaks. They don't look that angry. You're like, oh, he's a really nice guy. But throughout the Old Testament, 
You know what a shepherd is likened to? It's likened to a king. His people, he will guard them. He will fight off others. You can call him like a king shepherd. Because the, the, the shepherd calls out to his flock and they hear him. The king calls out to you and you hear him. You can, you can kind of hear David in this. David, the shepherd, called out from the sheepfold, called out as a shepherd, and is anointed king. Jesus calls out to you, and you who are redeemed, you hear him. And as any kid knows, no matter where you are in the store, I bet you, any kid, you can hear all the voices in the store, your mom whispers, and you know it's her. Your dad coughs, and you know it's him. It doesn't matter who's talking. You know it's them. It's the same with Jesus. It doesn't matter what other voice is coming out. You know it's Jesus. You know it's coming to you. And not only does Jesus bring you into a flock, he goes before you, both in and out. doesn't just say, hey, go on over there. I'll, I'll catch up with you later. He, he brings you to the flock. This is Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You can say almost because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And David's both describing his life in this psalm, but also the life of Israel. Because they went through the darkness. They went through the wilderness. And what were they led by in the wilderness? Two pillars of fire going through the wilderness. God saying, I'm with you, I'm before you. I'm going to lead you to the promised land. Don't you wish, though, that there were only good shepherds? That all you were led by were good shepherds? You wouldn't have to pick and choose. You're like, all of them are good. But you know that's not the case. It's not all good shepherds out there. Because in verse 5, and really all of John 10, it's kind of like an extended meditation of Ezekiel 34. He's talking about some Old Testament allusions here, and they're not, they're not good allusions. He does this because Ezekiel 34, it, it basically starts off as a condemnation against shepherds, against those who lead Israel, not by the word of the Lord, but for their own gain. Yeah, this feels pretty cool. People are following me. I'm going to lead them where I want them to go. Don't really care what the Lord tells me. And a proclamation, though, it ends with a proclamation. Ezekiel 34 ends with a promise saying, Yes, Israel, right now you're being led by false shepherds. But a day is coming when a good shepherd is coming. He's going to bring you, and Ezekiel 34 ends with this He's going to bring you into the luscious fields of new creation. Not even. The promised land. He's going to bring you into new creation. Not just this temporary field, temporary pasture. He's going to bring you to the pastures of new creation heaven. But that's what you have to look forward to. And it's not just a voice you want to hear in the wilderness. Especially someone who wants to do you wrong. You want to hear Jesus' voice. That's all you want to hear in the wilderness. So John reminds you in verse 6... 
that Jesus spoke this, and it's hard to, to translate this phrase. It's like a parable or an allegory, figure of speech. It's, it's this is like this. In order, because a parable, if you know what Jesus uses parables for, they're actually not to make things clear. It's not to say, hey, here's an easier way of understanding this. He uses a parable or figure of speech to actually hide his meaning. Saying, there are people here, oh, I, I don't want to know this. And there are there, my sheep, who I, I do want to know this. And so this is one of those. He's about to get a whole lot more specific. And you've heard this. He goes right against the Pharisees and those who are currently leading Israel. So with the same voice, not two different voices, but the same voice, the shepherd both calls in his sheep, he calls you, calls you in, and he hides from the wolves, saying, I, I don't want them in, but I want you in. For not only is he a shepherd, which is good, you want a shepherd, you want somebody who knows his sheep, but you can have bad shepherds, you can have self-centered shepherds. Self, self-deceitful shepherds. Those shepherds who are like, I want to lead the, the sheep into, into my flock, not the Lord's flock. So what you want is you want a good shepherd. And I think sometimes we think good is not like a big enough descriptor, but for, for, for here, that's, that's what you want. You want a, a good shepherd. A shepherd who, who relates to the good God. This brings us to point two, the goodness of the shepherd. And if Jesus were speaking somewhat vaguely, which he, he says in verse 6, he's, he's providing kind of a figure of speech and allegory to keep things clear for some and not clear for others. He gets really specific in verses 7 to 13. He says, first, I am the door of the sheep. But that's kind of an odd way to start, Right? You might think he'd say, I'm the shepherd first. Because that's kind of what he's already talking about. But why does he say, I am the door? It's kind of an odd way of describing himself. I'm a door. I'm the thing that hinges. Because the good shepherd is the one and only good shepherd. And he's the entrance into the pasture. Not just the shepherd who just shows you through the entrance. He's like, no, I'm the entrance. And the shepherd. Together. And I think for some of you, this, this, this might hit different. This might be where you part ways with Jesus. Because I think there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of a drive to look at Jesus as like, kind of just a good moral teacher. Like, had some nice things to say, taught some things that are quotable. Tame religious teacher who, who was wrongly persecuted and, and we like the fact that Jesus takes care of the outcast, but like, that's, that's about all we like. But you ask, but, but the way to God. Like, the door. Not one amongst many doors, but the door. That seems narrow-minded. I can't, I can't get behind that. Maybe he's a way, he's your way, sure, but not my way. But the way, the door... And I, I would sympathize with that if he was just a teacher. If he was just a good moral teacher. Someone, 
someone of sound mind and a meek soul who, who, who brought in the, the, the broken. If that's how you saw him, then yeah, it makes sense. If he says, I am the door, it's like, that's, that's going too far. It's going way too far. But you've got to deal with, with this Jesus. The one just a chapter before healed a blind man and says, I am the son of man. That's the Jesus who says, I am the door. Not just the teacher, it's the son of man. The son of God who says this. That's, that's why he's the only way. Not one amongst many or your way, but not my way. He's the only way. The door of the pastor, the one you must go through if you were to find forever rest. And so he continues, Jesus does in verse 8, everyone who came before me, notice that. Not like some good, some bad, some like iffy. Everyone who came before me. Doesn't leave room for imagination. Like, well, what about this guy? David was pretty cool. But then David killed Uriah and then took on Bathsheba. He continues with this because everyone and the people he's talking to, he's talking to Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, those who are currently leading Israel. He's like, you're, you're the ones who came before me. You're the bad ones. He's telling them to their face, you're the bad ones. He goes back to, I am a door. He says it again in verse 9. It's as if you're prone to forget. As if I am prone to forget. He says it once. He's like, well, that wasn't enough. I need to tell you again. I am the door. You must go through Jesus if you want to enter salvation. If you want to enter rest. You have to. You must, you can say, go through God to get to God. There's only way and way to God, and it's through him. Through God. Only God in the flesh, fully man and fully God, can satisfy his own demands. He sets up the demand and says, you have to go through this. You can't, so he says, I'll go through this. I will be the door to myself. Jesus is the temple. We've talked about that. The, the inner holy of holies, where one priest goes once a year for all the sacrifices of Israel. It's like, I am that. That's me. But the glory of Yahweh dwells in the Old Testament, or dwelt in the Old Testaments. If you know what's in front of the Holy of Holies that separates out from everything else, it's a door. It's a veil. It's a really thick veil with two cherubim on top of it. He's like, I'm that thing. To get to God, you have to get through me because I'm God. He's, he's literally how you enter into God's presence. You can't go through sacrifices. Those show you what he's like, but you have to go through Jesus. And the serpents, the thief and the robber, they came into the holy place. They came into the garden. They came into the Garden of Eden back in Genesis 3. And not to lead Adam and Eve into life, to take life from them. He says, I'll, I'll take that and I'll give you death. How about that deal? And it's as if history has repeated itself over and over and over and over again. Serpent comes in different forms, says, I don't want to give you life, I want to give you death. In the very moments when the good shepherd shows up and says, I'm not giving you death, I'm giving you life. And look at verse 11. And this is, you can almost say, this is, this is where it gets really, really good. Really good. 
Because Jesus identifies himself with the, the good shepherd. He doesn't just say, I'm the shepherd, because there's lots of shepherds. He says, I'm the, I'm the good shepherd. Notice he doesn't say, I'm a good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. As if there's no others besides him. The Lord himself, remember Ezekiel 34, will send a good shepherd. And Jesus says, Ezekiel 34, that's me. I'm the good shepherd. I'm coming in. So that's good. But then notice what else he says. Who gives his life on behalf of the sheep. Willingly laying it down that he might lift his sheep up. Taking on the condemnation the sheep deserved. Says, I'll take that. I'll take your condemnation. Being treated as unrighteous, being treated as the bad shepherd. I'm going to come as the good shepherd and be treated as the bad shepherd. I'll be treated as a thief and robber. I'll be treated as a wayward sheep. I'm the good shepherd and I'll do that. I'll take it on. And so he can give life to those who rejected him. Who said, I don't want a good shepherd. I want a bad shepherd. He says, I will die for you. I will give you my righteousness. And the next verse, verse 12, or verse 13, it basically, basically summarizes all of redemptive history. If you read it, in verse 13, or verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And then verse 13, he flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. You can kind of define, kind of, kind of summarize all of Old Testament figures. That's what he's doing up until Jesus. In the garden, like I just said, Adam, did Adam lay down his life and says, no, serpent, I have to kill you so that we receive life. He says, come right on in. And then blames God. He says, but the woman you gave me, I'm going to throw her under the bus so that I can go free. He threw her under the bus and then he blames her. The first one blames her. The first you can call him shepherd. Blames the sheep. It's like, well, she made me do it. Abraham gives Sarah over to foreign rulers twice. You think he'd figure it out after the first one. But another pharaoh comes in. He's like, you're too good looking. I'm going to give you over to this guy in case I get killed. I'd rather you die than me. And we know David... We think of David as a man after God's own heart, which is true. But what did he do? He kills Uriah when he should be in battle and then takes Bathsheba. You could say, giving over the sheep so the shepherd receives life. And so this, this list goes, I mean, this goes on and on and on throughout redemptive history. So all they're waiting for is, when's the good shepherd coming? When's the one who's not going to take our life, but who's going to give us life? Who's going to give you life? When's he coming? But this shepherd doesn't throw you before God. 
He presents himself as the offering. Not just so that you can go free, but he, he gives you his standing. He earns it and says, here you go. I'm not going to throw you before God without righteousness. I'm going to give you to God with righteousness. And that's, that's the incredible work of laying down his life on behalf of the sheep. No one did that besides Jesus. Jesus says, I will die for you. And I will rise for you. That's what makes this shepherd so good. And as if it could get even better, it does get better than this. You're like, well, how can it possibly get better than the shepherd giving his life and raising it for me? He says, I'm going to give you my relationship with God. That's also what you get. Not just life, but life with God, the same benefits that I had. Same benefits that I have. This brings us to point three, one with the shepherd. So he repeats himself for a second time. He says, says, I am the door, I am the door, I am the shepherd, I am the shepherd, or I am the good shepherd again. Not just a shepherd or the shepherd, but I am the good shepherd. I am the model of the good shepherd. I come from the good shepherd. But all these leaders are shepherds. You can say the Pharisees, they're shepherds. Not good ones, but they're shepherds. It depends on what kind of shepherds they are. And the good shepherd knows his sheep, both because he's raised them, he knows them, he's led them, and they know him. It's not just a one-way street, not just some disinterested God that you know, but he doesn't really know you, or a God who knows you, but you don't really know him. It goes both ways. It's intimacy. It's, it's what a shepherd has for the sheep that he's raised. He knows you. He's tended for your entire life. His love for you and his protection over you, you can say his jealousy for you. We think jealousy is a bad word. Jealousy has bad connotations. But for him, this is holy jealousy. I want nothing bad to happen to you. You will be with me. You will always be with me. You will never leave me. It's not based, again, on a sheep's performance. How obedient are sheep? Not very obedient. They don't go where they're told to go. When the shepherd moves them, he has to kind of kick them in the butt and says, get over here. That's who he's saying I know. Not those who, like, really earned it. Like, oh, you're a really smart sheep. He says, no, you're, you're a really dumb sheep. But you're mine. You're my sheep. It's conditionless. He comes to you and says, no, meet these conditions. He says, no, you're my sheep. It's based off my performance. I'm going to do it. And do you hear what he compares this to? This is verse 15. What, what do you compare his knowing the sheep with? As the Father knows me. That's as strong as you can possibly get knowledge-wise. Saying, not like, but just as the Father knows me, I know my sheep. He compares the love he has for you, the knowledge he has for you, the intimacy he has with you, with the Father's knowledge and intimacy with him. That's the parallel. Like, that's what it's like. Absolutely perfect and eternal knowledge that never fails, that's fully knowledgeable, never wanes, 
and is never rattled. He's like, that's my knowledge of you. That's my love for you. If you want to know what that looks like, look for God's love for me. The best parallel. And though this pasture you're in because Jesus knows you and bought you in, or brought you in, that pasture will never be rattled. Not just him, but his pasture that he brings you in. And he's still got more that he's looking for in verse 16. He's saying, I I got you. I'm not going to lose you, but I'm looking for more. I want more. I'm going to bring more, which is why he's delaying his second coming. I need more. I'm going to get more. The Father and the Son agreed before all time that the Son would be given a people, you can say the sheep, on condition that he obeys on their behalf. So there is condition in this relationship, but it's not your condition. It's his condition. So actually, he takes on all the responsibilities. says, I'm going to do it. Those people can't do it because they're not going to obey. I'm going to do it. So with the same voice, or this, is, this is called actually the, the, the covenant of redemption. We, we talked about this a little bit before. But it's the agreement between a father and a son I'm going to give you a people as long as you do what you're supposed to do to take them in. Jesus seeks other sheep that are part of this agreement. Because he knows the agreement he was given by the Father. He's like, I'm going, to, I'm going to bring them in. I was given a task. I'm going to complete this. And Jesus doesn't go, just go looking for you. Just as if, like, I need to find more. He, he says, I'm going to obey for you. The conditions laid on me. I'm going to obey for you. You'll be so united with him, you are so united with him, that you're considered one with him. You, you've, got, you've got him. You are his. Once he calls you in. That's, covenant of redemption could be high and theoretical, but that's what it means. You become part of this communion. You become part of this relationship not because of what you, the sheep, did, because of what the shepherd did. And, and so look at verse 17. It makes this even more stark, even more clear. And it's almost shocking. For this reason, so he conditions it. I came and I had this agreement for this reason. Because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. He's saying, That's why the Father loves me. Because I came down for you. I came down in human flesh. I earned his love for you. I had it from all beginning, from all creation, from before creation. I came as a human so I could re-earn it again and give it to you. That's why the Father loves me. And that's why the Father loves you. Because they had entered into this covenant, like I said, before and outside time. And the son was told, you will lay your life down for this people and rise it up again for this people. And the son says, okay. And then he does it. And that's why the father loves him. He earned it. Your entrance, you can say, is unconditional. It's by faith. Based on his condition. So you can say it really is conditional, but you're not the one who took that on. 
He took it on. And he gives you unconditionally. You enjoy the Father's pasture, not because you looked for it, not because you longed for it, not because you found it, but because Jesus earned it. He says, come on in. This is yours. And because the Father promised this and the Son earned it, that's, that's what makes verse 18 true. No one can take you from me because Jesus earned it. Jesus' earning means no one can take it away. It's built on infinite conditional performance. He did it. He's got divine authority. So it's not just him as a human just doing his thing. And not just authority, although this is true, not just authority from the divine Godhead, but it's authority as divine Godhead, as truly God, and truly human. He has that kind of authority. Because no one can take away from you because I've got authority, and they can't take me. As, the, as a messianic son of, son of man, which is, which is Jesus' favorite self-description, son of man comes from Daniel 7. And this son of man comes from, Daniel, Daniel 7 comes from the, the clouds with glory and says, I have authority over earth. I'm going to establish my authority over earth. So when, when he's saying this authority, he's bringing to mind this picture. I'm that guy. I'm the one Daniel promised you is coming. I'm the one coming from clouds with glory as God. And not just to establish authority, but it says, I'm going to lay down my life and then lift it up again. That's who he is. Though you might expect worship and shouts of adulation, which is what you want to do when you hear this, what happens? In verses 19 to 21, a schism. After he just proclaimed, I'm the good shepherd, I'm going to bring you into the flock. They're trying to figure out, what do we do with this guy? It's clearly not just a good morals teacher who's just kind of, kind of giving us some good stuff to live by, a little bit of help here and there. He's like, no, I'm, I'm God. And you're going to follow me or you follow somebody else. And it's because they, they don't recognize his voice. They don't know it. They don't know who's talking as the Pharisees had, had jeered Jesus multiple times in, in previous chapters, instead of saying, this man is fully God, they say, this guy has a demon. Because the only way he can heal that blind man is he got demon powers. Got something else that's not God. Only God can do this. He's a man, therefore he can't do this. He must have a demon. They think he's been demon-powered to perform his miracles. They, they think... Yahweh would never touch this blind man. He's too impure. He's too unclean. So it has to be a demon. You, you can almost you hear them thinking. Because, again, he's calling them thieves and robbers. Everyone who came before him, thieves and robbers. You, you can hear them thinking. If you put yourselves in their, in their brain, this, this is insanity. Is he calling us thieves and robbers? Us good, moral, law-abiding people. Is he calling us robbers? Is he, is, he, is he saying that we don't follow God's law? 
He's telling us we break it. That's what he's saying. But then others ask, or comments, these are not the words of one oppressed by a demon. Because we know only God can heal a blind man. Both of, of physical sights and of spiritual sights. And by ending this section with the narrative of the blind man, notice the last part of verse 21. That's because they were thinking about the blind man. He's, he's trying to link these two together. saying, I'm actually talking about chapter 9. That's where this connects with. And they probably happen one right after the other. Right when he receives the blind man, after he's kicked out of the synagogue, then he probably goes right into this discourse and says, you are bad shepherds. I am a good shepherd. But some want nothing to do with the good shepherd. And some, maybe here, are intrigued. Because the good shepherd, he's calling to you. And some of you hear his voice. And some of you don't. And his pastures, they're, they're wide and green. They're, they're lush and they're glorious. If you read Ezekiel 34, it is clear. This, this is where you want to be. Jesus is the good shepherd who will never lose you, who will never treat you badly, and who will never stop loving you. Now we think that's too good to be true because this is, this is true of him. The love Jesus has for you, his own, is the same love his Father has for him. That's the love he has for you. It's his Father's love for him. That's the love you get. And that's because he is of the same, you can say, Godness of the Father. I can give you this love because I am God. That's the kind of love I give. He can only love you this way because he comes from the Father. Jesus, who laid down his life to the pleasure of his Father, to earn his Father's love, whom he agreed with to do so, lifted you up again and gave you this life. The good shepherd who, who gave his life on behalf of the sheep. This is yours. When you confess his name, you get that. That is yours. The condition of this performance is not on you, it's on Jesus, and he perfectly satisfies it. And he does that to get you, to bring you to the Father, because he's the door, and he's the shepherd. You, a sheep who wandered from the flock of God, was brought back in by the good shepherd, who was pushed out by God. He says, I'm going to treat you like the bad sheep and I'm going to bring them in because you did it. Because you obeyed on their behalf. He's speaking to you. Jesus is. And you can hear him through the words of John. And so you can rest. Because you weren't pushed out. Jesus was pushed out. And that's like, you might be brought back in and never leave this pasture. And that's because it was purchased by him. And that's because he's never going to leave you. You're always in this pasture. Let's pray. Lord, we hear the news that not only are you a shepherd or just a, a decent shepherd, you're the good shepherd 
who doesn't just lead us but lays down his life, is mocked by others, is sent out into the wilderness, is treated as the bad shepherds, is treated as a bad sheep, and that he might give us his record of obedience, that we can come back and us who should be pushed out, we receive this good pasture that we will never leave. Not because we ourselves do something, because your son has done everything and has given this to us. We thank you and we praise you. All this in your son's name. Amen.